Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey, everybody, it's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. This week's episode features Leslie Harris. She's the global general manager of SkinCeuticals. And if you missed last week's episode, it featured Indy Lee. She's the founder and CEO of Indy Lee. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm so pleased to be here with Leslie Harris. She is the global general manager of SkinCeuticals. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited, Leslie, that we get to do this on the air because we had such a fun and take conversation. And I'm excited to start us off with one of my favorite questions, which is when you were a little kid, maybe like your 11-year-old self, and someone asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? What was your answer? Ooh, it's funny. It changed. It changed a number of times. And I think it also speaks to, I love change and learning new things. So when I was younger, um, I wanted to be a brain surgeon, and that involved um, buying hamburger meat and trying to dissect it because it looked like brains. Um, Then I wanted to be a pilot uh, until I read in a book that women couldn't be pilots. They could only be flight attendants because maybe, you know, the pilots might get pregnant. It was a lot, you know... It was, it was an old book in the library. I, I hope it's like not in the elementary school library anymore. Um, but interestingly enough, everything I wanted to be, there was always a costume associated with it. And I, even, even with sports, like the sports I played when I was younger, it was always because there was a costume. Um, so I guess, you know, regardless of what I wanted to be when I was younger, I think I always liked this idea of adornment and beauty and playing different parts. That is... <laughs> And then I wanted to be an actress, like a million kids want to be actresses. And thankfully, it, ser- it served my career because I feel comfortable presenting. And I always say to my dad, aren't you glad you spent all this money on like sleepaway theater camp? Now I can like present in front of an audience. I didn't end up being an actress or anything, but, you know, I can tell a story. <laughs> so I wish that um, our listeners could see that strange faces I am making as you took me through the journey of what did you want to be when you grew up? Like the dissecting hamburger meat painted like a really gross but amazing picture of yes, what it would be like to like, you know, look in a brain, I would imagine. Um, (laughs) That women can't be pilots. I created some other sort of strange looking face when I heard that one. I did have a pilot costume. I'm pretty sure I had a pilot costume. Um, So you mentioned sports. What were your childhood sports? Okay. So let's be clear. When we talk about sports, I was not sporty. Um, I, I fenced for a while. Again, the costume, right? Um, I think I thought it was a very, like, romantic thing to do. Um, romantic not in the love sense, but in the sort of, like, literature sense. (laughs) Um, and there was a cute boy that was on the fencing team. Um, so I think that was a draw as well. Uh, but I, I, I enjoyed it, you know? Um, but after that, I, I think I pretty much stuck to walking, cycling, those kinds of activities. Um, I was an indoor kid, I would say, more than an outdoor kid. Well, um, that leads me beautifully to um, our next topic, speaking of indoor kid. Um, You worked at Ann Taylor at the Short Hills Mall. I did. I did. So you want me to tell you about what it was like to be a runner at Ann Taylor, the Short Hills Mall? Yes. Um, I started college um, and probably like a month into my first semester, I sort of had this realization that I wasn't ready to start college yet. 
uh, and that I needed, I needed the mental break between high school and college. Um, and so thankfully, because of like AP credits and all this kind of stuff, I took my, the rest of my first semester off. Um, I moved into apartment, I got a car and I got a job. And, um, I want, I just wanted to, I wanted to really go back and learn and take advantage of all the value and really hunger for it rather than just see it as like, this is what I'm supposed to do next. And now I take this off the box and no, no, no. Um, and being a runner was, you know, you get to be around clothes and you get to sell clothes and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I was able to get to the point where I was like, okay, I'm ready to start learning again. But it was, it was a really interesting, you know, I think in England, um, people do gap years, I think in Europe too. And I, I think more Americans, we should adopt the idea of a gap year. Um, because there's, there's lots of ways to grow up and going right from high school to college is, is one way, but it's, it's not the only way. And you learn a lot of stuff, not only in school, right? So Leslie, I love this idea. And it's actually something I talk about with my kids. My kids are 10 and 13 that we don't have to, you don't have to do things just the same way everyone else is doing them. Um, and I think that's easier said now than when you and I were graduating from high school. So what you did is actually really courageous because you were saying to all the people <laughs> around you who I'm sure were on that one train, right? Everyone was on the train to towards college graduation and the great consulting job they're going to get or banking job they're going to get. Um, how did you have the courage to do that at that time? So I think, first of all, I was very fortunate, you know, um, in that, I could take the time and I did work through college, you know, to earn money and things like that. But I was, I had the privilege of being able to be in that situation. Um, I think it was just having some self-awareness of the, just the mental space I was in and like education is really expensive and it takes a lot out of you because you want to put a lot into it. And I didn't feel like I was really putting my whole self into it. I felt like there were, I was tired, you know, high school, I, I can't even imagine being in high school now. I have like, I don't know how teenagers cope, but even being in high school, you know, it's, it's stressful. You're getting into college, you do a million extracurriculars, you're trying to get the grades, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, people need breaks. It's very normal. Um, and I just, I just decided to go with it. I mean, I paid for it in terms of like, I took summer classes. I took, you know, I had to, I had to, uh, um, what's the word? Make up for it uh, through the rest of my through the rest of my years of college. But I think it was worth it, um, and I just kind of did it. And I think that's a little bit what I like to do. Um, I think I gravitate towards the edge of my comfort zone, um, even if I probably consider myself a little risk averse. But I like you know. Innovation doesn't happen in your comfort zone, right? <laughs> and so um, even, you know, I worked in investment banking after college and quit my job, sold all my things, and moved to England to get a master's degree in fashion history, which is like not the most useful degree you can get, right? Um, but similarly, it was one of those like, if not now, when? You know, when do you do these things? Um, and, you know, you, you take a chance. And I've noticed, like, I'm so glad that I took those chances because, 
you know, as you, at least as I've aged, I've gotten a little bit more, you know, you get more settled. There's, you, you can't just like leave at the drop of a hat the way you can when you're, you know, 21. Um, and I'm really glad that I took advantage of those opportunities. Um, Did you get a lot of slack from your cohort when you decided not to go back to school? Were like, you know, were they giving you a no, hard time and about it? No, I was it? only gone for, I was only gone for half a sem- for, for a semester. So it wasn't like I really took a big gap year. I just needed a break, you know? Um, no, it was really like, it wasn't, um, it wasn't really an issue. You know, I, I took a break, got my act together a little bit, went back to school and, and was able to put in what I wanted to put in and not just what I thought I should put in. I love that. And I love that you were able to listen to your, the own, your own voices in your head and not everybody else's, Yeah, um, which is very hard to do. You described yourself as um, risk averse, but it doesn't sound that way. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that because I've always thought of myself as like, I'm not risky, but like I run a business and I like, you know, that's risk, definitely risky. Risk yeah. Money all the time. Right. Yeah. And I, but in my head, I'm like, I'm super cautious, but I'm actually not. So I'm curious, like you, do you, do you think that you thought you were risk averse and you realize that you're actually not risk averse or do you still plant your feet and I'm a risk averse person? Um, it's funny. I'm risk averse, but I'm also impulsive. <laughs> which are kind of opposite. Um, I think I'm probably risk averse in the sense that I like to gather a lot of like data points before I make a decision. Um, and there are some things, I'm probably a little risk averse when it comes to the course of my life now than I probably was when I was like 23 or 25. Uh, which I think is quite normal, but I, you know, I, I'm like, I definitely take on too many projects, which I guess is not risk averse because, you know, then you're playing with time. Um, but I, I think I probably fall like somewhere in the middle. Um, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm what I'm calling risk averse is probably more like pragmatic, <laughs> you know, but, but for example, I don't think I would ever be able to just like wake up tomorrow, quit my job and run my own business. Like that's where I, that's where I, I fall down on, that's, that's too risky for me, I think. But creating things on the side, having side hustles, um, always, you know, probably saying yes to more than I should because there's an opportunity for learning. That can be risky, but you know, it's a different kind of risk, right? So before we um, hear about what you've been doing recently, I, I want to know what it's like to study the history of fashion. Um, you know, what was that like and what were your intentions? So when I I went back and I studied at the London College of Fashion because it was really one of the only places that had a program in fashion history that wasn't about um, museum curation or textile analysis. Uh, I was really interested in the culture of fashion. And I think the culture of fashion and the culture of beauty, it's sort of the culture of consumer goods. Like, what do we say about ourselves when we buy certain things? What does the, what does it mean for us and to others in how we dress and how we make up or don't make up our faces, um, or, or, you know, style our hair and things like that. Um, and I was really interested in this, in, in the intersection of culture and fashion and beauty. And, and I always put beauty and fashion together, um, you know, be- just because I think they're, they're so connected because they're about the self and they're about what you just, what you communicate about yourself. And we look at others and we make a, you know, a judgment, you know, 
split in split second based on what somebody looks like. Um, and that comes down to all the choices we make about how we look. And I, and I really enjoyed looking at the history of that. I specialized <laughs> in, strangely enough, the use of fashion to sell cars to women in interwar Britain. Uh, so sounds like I, I, I like to find things that are seemingly totally unrelated <laughs> and find a way to connect them. Um, and I think that even in innovation, like that's what's fun is you find things that seem like they have no relation and you find the relation because everything's kind of connected. And interestingly enough, um, women were becoming a consumer market after World War I. Um, and while women didn't buy cars themselves, they were quite influential in the purchase of the family car. And by appealing to women and maybe women's whimsy at the time, right, or emotional connection to fashion, they were able to make a car more appealing and differentiated, but also introduce this idea of planned obsolescence because fashions go in and out of style, or at least historically they did. Um, and so if you apply that idea to cars, cars can go in and out of, out of style because cars are like, they're meant to last for a while. So how do you get somebody to buy another car is you, you upgrade to make it look like it's a new fashion. Um, and there are all sorts of things they put in cars to make them female friendly, so to speak, you know, like little vanity cases. Um, there was an artist named Sonia Delaunay who uh, was a French designer and she worked, I can't remember the car company, but she worked to create fashionable interiors for the car. And you could also have dresses that matched your car with the same fabric. So, you know, there was a lot going on in consumer culture where, where fashion and beauty came to play. Uh, when you were learning about this, because it, it feels so um, out of your day-to-day, right? Like a, a, different time peri- <laughs> a different time period, a different, you know, t- uh, consumer good. And this idea of consumption, consumption and um, creating things that will become obsolete. Um, it's sort of one of my challenges being in this business is I, I don't, want to sell a lot of stuff that people don't need, right? Um, I want... Nobody needs more stuff. Right. So, um, you know, it is sort of a conflict within me. Um, and I, maybe that's one of the reasons why we're like, oh, you know, I guess for lack of a better way to say it, picky about who we work with, because I don't want to just sell stuff, right? Um, because there is so much stuff. We don't need more stuff. So um, does does that live in you, that learning that you had from your, your coursework? Um, does that carry through to your career today? It it does. Um, I think I'm very conscious of the stuff that we make and, and, and the role of beauty in people's lives, both as something that makes you feel a certain way, as well as a way that you communicate things about yourself to other people. Um, but, so I think I have a, a respect for the stuff, but at the same time, I don't want to make stuff just for the sake of making stuff. And so, at least at SkinCeuticals, every product we make, it has a purpose. There is a problem we are trying to solve. And if it's not trying to solve a problem, then it doesn't have a purpose. You know, it doesn't have a purpose, at least for SkinCeuticals. It's a very problem-solution brand, um, and it appeals to me. And similarly, when, when working on other brands, there was always the question of, what is the problem I'm actually trying to solve? Am I just making product to make product? Um, or am I making product that has a, has a reason to live in somebody's life? Um, and I, I carry that through. And I, I think even the brands, I'm not that person who could work 
that for any brand. I really have to like drink the Kool-Aid, um, which limits my career options, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> uh, and so I think, you know, how I approach my career, you know, if we talk about stuff is my career has to have meaning and there has to be meaning above, like making money is all really important, you know, all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, what are you creating beyond goods? What's the good you put back in the world? Um, and that's really, I would say purpose drives me more. Um, so the idea of stuff, I think my point is it expands beyond just like products, right? Right. I love that. That purpose is, is um, so meaningful. And that's how customers shop today, right? By like their values. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, you know, all of the disruption that happens, that has happened in beauty uh, over the years. And there are always, there seem to be in history, these big shifts, you know, you saw it in the twenties, you saw it in the sixties. Um, we're seeing it now in different ways. Uh, there, you know, beauty is the business of relevance, right? Somebody once said to me, and I think it totally, it's like the tech you see in history, like the technology, the needs don't really change. It's the context and the technology that changes. And, you know, that's always been, I think, something at the forefront for me in that because of culture, the world, like the world has forced beauty brands to change. And it's create and because barriers to entry are different, like brands can come forth now and be created more quickly and fill gaps that have been existing for a long time. And um, they're able to fill those gaps. So again, it's like they may make makeup, for example, but it's not stuff, you know, because of the role it plays in people's lives, depending on, you know, the segmentation and filling a need that historically or recently hadn't been met. Yeah, it's amazing that um, we haven't filled all that white space, but um, I guess since what's relevant changes, then what's white space changes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which keeps it fun, you know? Yeah. Um, so let's talk about your career. You started in um, private equity in m and Yeah. Um, how did you end up in that space? <laughs> Well, um, I was graduating college and I was like, I'm an economics major. What do I do? And at that point it was like, well, you either go into investment banking or you go into private equity. Um, so I went into private equity and I did well there, not because I was good with numbers, um, but because I knew how to write. And we, I worked a lot on, um, mergers and acquisitions where we were buying, uh, or selling companies. And so I would be putting together these pitch decks or memoranda. And I didn't know that I was marketing at the time. <laughs> you know, I went to a liberal arts college. There was no marketing, at least not when I went. And, um, and I, was, I was marketing without knowing it. I was doing market research. I was positioning companies. Um, you know, I was at a junior level, so it was not like me, the only person positioning these companies. But these were the deals that I was, that I was working on. Um, and I, and I actually, that's a little bit what led me to study fashion because I was working on a, I think I was working on a, like a door to door beauty brand like sale and you start to get deep in the research and you just kind of like, you go down the rabbit hole. Right. Um, and I started reading a little bit more about beauty culture and it led me to take a fashion course, um, and, you know, one thing led to another. And like, I said, you know what, I'm going to take a, a jump here and I'm just going to go back to school. Like, I'm going to be an academic. Um, and I kind of pivoted and <laughs> did a 180 from, from like 
you know, finance going into academia um, and, and, you know, the humanities at that. Um, but that. But that fun I had in writing and positioning companies and telling stories, I think, continues to be something that I really enjoy and that I look for in my job um, and in the jobs that I take. So you were able to go from finance to marketing because of that, um, f- you filled the, the gap with additional education. Is that how you were able to make that switch? You know, I, I think the, re- so the real switch I finally made to marketing was after I went to school and I got my master's degree, I was um, working in a, <laughs> I met a boy in England and wanted to find a way to stay in the country, uh, as one does. And we've now been married 18 years, by the way. Um, But it was a visa marriage. It started as a visa marriage. Um, But at the time, I I had gotten a job in (laughs) packaging development um, in cosmetics. And I knew nothing about it. It was like a job. But it was really fun because it was at this intersection of all the different, you know, it was at the intersection of creative and operations and uh, manufacturing and chemistry um, and, you know, engineering and culture. And I was like, this is really fun, but I don't want to be a supplier. Like, I want to be the person telling me what to do. So, you know, one of these, like, somebody knew somebody knew somebody. And I, um, my, my mom knew the head of product development at Kiehl's. She was in, my mom is a photographer, and she was in her class. And, she, and my mom said, like, you have to meet this woman. She runs Kiehl's. I'm like, I'm pretty sure she doesn't run Kiehl's. You know how parents are. Like, they don't, they don't get all the details. But I was like, okay, you know, and I went to speak with her, really just saying, like, what do I do to, it was absolutely informational. What do I do to position myself? Do I need to go back to school? Do I need to get an unpaid internship? Do I need to? And she's like, no, you, you actually have this unusual background because you have this financial background. And then, you're, then this, you have this consumer culture background. And at the time when I was living in England, I didn't have a lot of money. And so I would make my own products. And I worked at a massage therapy um, like company, for lack of a better term. And I worked with a lot of aromatherapists, so they would teach me things. And I just started making things. So, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And I think that having this blended background um, made me an interesting candidate. And I was there at the right place at the right time. They had an assistant manager job that was open. Um, I was still living in London at the time. And I remember coming home to my husband and saying, so here's the thing. I know you said you'd live anywhere but never New York. But there's this opportunity, <laughs> and I really want to go. And if you don't want to go, I'm still going to go. So do you want to go? <laughs> and my husband, being the mensch that he is, um, was like, all right, yeah, we'll do it. And so we packed up um, and moved, to, moved back to America. Um, and that was back in, what, 2005. So, and I've been at L'Oreal ever since. Um, but my first job was marketing. And so I really learned a lot, like just, I learned a lot by doing before I then, I then went back and got a master's in cosmetics and fragrance marketing and management. Um, But that's kind of how I made the leap to marketing. And so I really think that it's about finding transferable skills that can appeal to an employer and where you bring value. Um, And it's kind of like, 
you know, you meet somebody and you really want to be their friend. So you try to find like commonalities. It's like, you like this, I like this. You go here, I go here. We should be best friends. You know, so in interviewing with companies, and this is like in hindsight, I can't say I thought about this when I was like 29, but it was, I had these skill sets that made my point of view interesting, but also gave value to them. And in turn, I was learning from them and I was learning marketing. Um, so, and then like, here I am. I, it, honestly, some people start out when they're, you know, five and they say, I want to be a brain surgeon and they're 35 and they're a brain surgeon. I was five and I want to be a brain surgeon. And I'm always like, how did I get here? And I think it's, you know, I never had that five-year plan. I never, and, and, you know, bless those who do because it's great to be that organized. I've always followed intellectual curiosity. And maybe, so maybe that doesn't make me risk averse then. Um, and if you ask me, what, where do I see myself in five years? I couldn't tell you because who knows what the world's going to look like in five years, you know? Um, and that's kind of the fun of it. Leslie, I think what's so interesting here is um, you, you seem really at ease with, um, in a sense, going with the flow um, and taking on opportunities. But I'm not a go with the flow type. Well, you're going with the flow and it seems like you're able to take these opportunities <laughs> without like being driven by your ego, which is, you know... Like, I guess so exciting to me, especially for our listeners, is that you can be a runner at Ann Taylor. You can get a random job at a cosmetic packaging manufacturer. You can go to a meeting with someone your mom introduced you to, and now you can run SkinCeuticals, right? So, like, um, <laughs> you know, I used to think that, like, you had to have this, like, very specific pedigree and know all these certain people to be able to advance in your career. And, you know, thankfully, like, my, I've been able to disprove that. And you're, you're disproving that for me too. And I think it's really important that people hear that, right? Like you did not have a straight line to global general managers, consuticals. No. And, and actually when I hire and I, I look to, you know, I look at candidates to bring onto the team, I really look for, you know, diversity in many ways. Um, and diversity of lived experience and your background is also really important. Um, in terms of what somebody brings. So I, you know, I've hired people from labs, I've hired people from operations, I've hired, you know, people who worked in media, like having different backgrounds because it, you know, I think we, I hope at this point, we all sort of understand the value of diversity um, and, you know, why it's so important that you have a, a diversity of voices that have a seat at the table, I think is also really important. Um, but that's, you know, it's all about too going back to marketing is like showing somebody why those values are important. And particularly if some of your listeners are junior, when you're junior, what I care about is that you're smart, you're hungry, and you really want to learn and do good work. Like I read your resume. I know what it says. I'm not expecting you to be an expert in X, Y, Z. I want you to, I want you to really want to, um, add value and get something out of it and be part of a team. Like that's what you look for, right? Or at least what I look for. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just love um, these situations. I love people painting a picture of what their real history is like because the LinkedIn version of ourselves is not, um, it's not enough, right? It's, it's, a, it's a facade. It, there's no detail, and uh, um, it's like free therapy for me to hear these stories <laughs> like yours, where it's, it's zigzaggy. Sometimes there's, you know, loops, it's never a straight line. And that I agree with you. That's what makes um, people like their point of view is more enriching. Um, it makes for, I think, a truer set, a truer expression of what the consumer's thinking, That's right? True. When somebody's you know, had a little bit more of a zigzag. Yeah. I mean, 
because I think people's lives today are a little bit more zigzag than they were. And even if we think about how we shop, we're not, we don't shop by one channel anymore. We don't only buy certain kinds of brands at certain price points anymore. Like it's kind of the consumer drives, the consumer's in the driver's seat, which is also good, right? Because that's also how change in the beauty industry continues to happen. So um, my last question for you, Leslie, is about your side hustle. Um, so I don't know how you have the time for one, but you do. Um, tell us um, about Dog Hospice. Yes. So I volunteer for an organization called Foster Dogs, which is an organization that its mission is to create awareness and education and promote a fostering community. Um, and for anybody who has never fostered a dog or a cat before, um, it's like once you're married, it's like the closest you can get to dating, right? <laughs> and when you take in dogs from shelters, you know, it's, you know, working in the beauty, working in the beauty industry where we love before and afters, watching a dog transform from a shelter dog to this dog who's like ready to graduate with a, with, you know, to a permanent home um, is really fulfilling. And I think I have a resident dog. They call them resident dogs when you also foster. But my dog, Allie, um, as she's gotten older, I think I started to just being a nerd, like interested in what happens when dogs age. And then also learning like the number of dogs that are euthanized or languish at a shelter because of their age and dogs that are in their third chapter and, and they die in a shelter, which is like a really stressful way to go. And so if there's a way for us to find ways to bring them out of the shelter for that third chapter, uh, whether it's, you know, two weeks, two months or a year, um, they get to see, they get to feel love at the end of their life. And that's what they, that's what they leave knowing with. And it's, um, I think it's also, it, it's also a way to look at, you know, sort of selfishly, like, how do you live in the present? How do you enjoy like what dogs enjoy just by simply existing? Um, and so it's, it's fun. It's, it's, it's not easy, but it's not, it's not as sad as it sounds. Um, because they don't die in a shelter. They get, it's like you have a dog and like you have a bucket list, you have a bucket list dog, you know? So it forces you to also think about like, what are the fun things you want to give to this dog? And it kind of creates this sense of happiness. Um, and so foster dogs has a FOSPIS program called Chloe's FOSPIS Friends. And we focus a lot. Um, we do some pulling of dogs. Uh, again, pulling is like when you take them out of the shelter, all the lingo you have to learn. Um, but we also do a lot of education, uh, uh, you know, for, for rescues, for hospice, um, hospice, so foster hospice, um, for new hospice um, caretakers or people who adopt hospice or super senior dogs. Um, and it's, it's fun. And I, I think what, what is also really nice, you know, you think about balance is like a lot of my job is it takes a lot of brain power. And I think hospice takes a lot of heart power and, and, having a connection with people and finding ways to connect people and, and dogs um, is really fulfilling for both of them. Leslie, thank you so much. That's so inspiring. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your career and phosphorus wisdom with our listeners. <laughs> and for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Leslie. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.